happy Friday and welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team for the Athletic Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We're live at Rogers Arena and always live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, another game day for the Vancouver Canucks. They host Columbus. Another big tank matchup tonight on the schedule. Drancer, Come last, last Come game. On. Yesterday, yesterday was like a gift. From yesterday the was amazing. Tank from the tank heavens. I loved your <laughs> tweets about it. Absolutely amazing. Despite your irresponsible advocacy of nicotine use, I thought <laughs> it was a, a quality, some quality work from my colleague Jamie Dodd slash Dunn on Twitter. Yes, yes. And look, the Canucks are at minus one eighty faves tonight. Yeah, they are going to win going away. They're. They are going to win going away tonight against the Columbus Blue Jackets. So the one thing I'll say about Columbus is, like, we all saw Chicago and what they did. Don't tell me that they have some guys. They there. do. Yes. They're so, better. They're better than Chicago. By the way, let's all remember this when people are like, the Canucks have some good players. Yeah, so does Columbus. The Columbus Blue Jackets have Lion have Johnny Goudreau and Patrick Lyon. And, and Kent Johnson. Yeah. And and my guy Nick Blink Blankenberg. <laughs> yes. Yes. And guess what? The Canucks are going to womp them tonight. Womp them. Minus 180 faves? Trance, as you know, in one game, in one game, anything can happen in the NHL. As we saw last night. Sorry, in one game for sure. The Anaheim Ducks beat the Colorado Avalanche. The Blackhawks beat the Calgary Flames at home. Another one that I'm forgetting, the Coyotes 5-0 over the Blues. Let's put this in perspective, though. Like, the Toronto Maple Leafs hosting the Ottawa Senators tonight are minus 200 faves. Yeah. Right? The Dallas Stars are minus 160 faves tonight. The Seattle Kraken hosting a Calgary Flames team coming off a back-to-back in which they lost 4-1 to the uh, Chicago Blackhawks are minus 120 faves. Like, minus 180 is a significant, significant. favor. It's, it's significant. It's, it's the fourth most favored the Canucks have been in a game all season long. All season long. Yeah. Columbus is bad. Look, the, let's, the, let's not be around the bush. The, the Grizzlies tonight are, are favored by a lower margin to beat the moribund Timberwolves. <laughs> like, come on. So anyway, I look. I, until I'm shown otherwise, I believe the Canucks are absolute pretenders in the tank battle. No matter what the standings look today after a gift from heaven day for the tank. This was like those, we had some days like this down the stretch last year where like all the teams ahead of the Canucks would lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like the Canucks were still never yeah. in it, but people got excited. The ones I was actually. Th- those are, it, this is like. The um, bizarro inverted version of the Bruce There It Is bump. So I'm uh, I'm having a little bit of fun with it, but I'm less concerned about like what the Coyotes, Blackhawks, Ducks, and Blue Jackets do, and more concerned with what like the Flyers, and the, the Predators, Senators, the Blues, the, uh, yeah, the Red Wings, Montreal. And I will say, Flyers lose in overtime to pick up a point. Montreal picks up a point but lose in overtime Montreal, uh, to Detroit. Those, that's a three-point Mon- game. Mon- Montreal is another one. Like, just, just factor them being beneath the Canucks at season's end. Yeah, they're... They also have the most difficult schedule the rest of the way. So they are, like, the absolute opposite of the Canucks. The schedule is going to tear the Canadians asunder down the stretch. And then they'll... And then they'll hey, by the way, I want to note this really quickly. The Ben Chirot trade 
mm-hmm. which has the Montreal Canadiens holding a Florida Panthers team's first-round pick. Florida Panthers are by no means guaranteed. I mean, I think at this point people expect them to miss the playoffs, yep. but that's probably getting ahead. Like, the, the Florida Panthers, despite the fact that everyone is looking at the standings and sort of overreacting to the likelihood of them missing the playoffs here, they're only plus 110. To make like Vegas doesn't believe that they're like they're only narrowly favored to miss by it's a, Vegas. It's like, a t- let, they've got a tough road though to get there. Let like, me let me give you the context here though. Yeah. Vegas has them as plus one ten, which is like fifty or forty five percent likely to make the playoffs implied probability roughly, right? But they have the Calgary Flames at minus three fifty. Yeah. You know, like this is this Vegas isn't buying the the Florida Panthers are like for, gonna miss. So I don't think we should. They're not either. buying that they're cooked. But I'm glad it happened because how many times last year were people like, teams aren't going to trade their first round pick. You, that's pie in the sky stuff. Because how many times was I talking about the Trying asset that the you really want first, is to pick yeah. a team and bet on bet against them? Because it's going to happen to somebody, right? And this year it's sort of like Colorado's flirted with it given all their injuries. Mm-hmm. Florida, you know, it hasn't been the teams that I was most identifying, Vegas, New York and Boston and, and on and on. But um, – Washington could still miss the playoffs. Like, there are teams that make this mistake almost every year, and it might not even hurt Florida. They might make the playoffs. In fact, you know, Vegas thinks they're at least you know have an outside shot still. But it does happen every year. So just remember that next time I bring it up as an idea, the Canucks should be aiming for. I agree. They should be aiming for it again. Well, also, even if you look at it for net, like the whole idea of, well, you know, you trade Horvat and get a first round pick from a good team and you know it's just going to be, you know, 25 or worse. Well, not if you do it for next year. And also, whatever, pick 25. (laughs) You get good players at 25. There's nothing wrong with having an extra pick in the first round in the 20s. I don't know why that's such a bad thing for some people. Like, oh, well, that's useless. That's worthless. No, it's not. I mean, I think bad teams are sorry. I think contending teams should be way more aggressive in monetizing those picks. Right? Like, people, I had a guy in my mentions bring up, like, Gaunts and Schrader and Jensen, like, you know, late first rounders, who cares? Um, you know, and obviously I responded with Tage Thompson, Shea Theodore, yeah. David Pasternak, but it's, it's more that the problem with those picks aren't that the Canucks didn't land the difference making player, it's that they made them at all. Right? Like, be aggressive about your situation. I want to really quickly touch on this, and I want to do it as carefully and as fairly as I can. But weird vibes today. Yeah, so let's just run through the the couple of things contributing to the weird vibes. Yeah. So yesterday, off of course, after uh, the Canucks signed Andre Kuzmenko to the extension, which we talked about a lot yesterday, uh, they also said that uh, Kuzmenko would be made available to the media after the game day skate today, and they said that General Manager Patrick Alvin Alvin would also be uh, have a press conference with the media at some point in the morning to be confirmed this morning, right? So presumably around. You know, after game day skate, something like that. And they said they'd confirm the time in the morning. Uh, the change of plans today is that Patrick Alvin will be speaking to the media post game, which is a little odd, right? To have uh, the general manager addressing the media after a game. Also, it's going to be like, you know, 9.30, 9.45, 10 on a Friday night. So there's that. And then the other part of it is... Lane Peterson, and we'll run through the lines at some point here. We'll hear from Rick Tockett. Lane Peterson was skating on a first line with Elias Pettersson and Andre Kuzmenko at morning skate. And then it was also announced by the team that he has been placed on waivers to be reassigned to Abbotsford, which is a little odd 
as well. So you you know you put those two things together and well, it makes you go hmm. Yeah, but and it's not. I'm not, and I'm not saying well, there's a big trade coming or anything no, like no, that. No. But it's just oh, okay, interesting. Well, I honestly hope there is. So I hope there's another shoe to drop before Alvin speaks, and that explains why today has been structured so oddly. Because it worries me a little bit. Like, Rick Tockett, after the availability, we asked about the Lane Peterson thing, because it's so weird. Mm-hmm. Like, Peterson was in the room, and he looked confused when media was in there. Like, I saw his teammates asking him about it and stuff. Like, it looked, it was and I, odd. And I want to be clear, there's nothing in and of itself odd about sending Lane Peterson down. No, like, this is the last Canucks game for a while. It's odd on the first line. Yeah, exactly. And like also, he, there's no corresponding move. He walked into this morning and saw his name on the whiteboard with Kuzmenko and Pedersen. And so you start gearing yourself up for, like, a big opportunity to show a new coach a certain thing. And then within an hour, like, you're just stepping off the ice and you're on waivers? Like, that's confusing. And Rick Tockett said afterwards, just a paperwork thing. I haven't talked to the guys upstairs. Did he not know that Peterson was going to go on waivers? Like, that's what confuses me here. Mm -hmm. I hope that there's a trade that explains it, because otherwise it feels like a communication breakdown. Right? The Alvin thing, you know, I hope that they had to postpone the announcement because there's something coming. Because he's working on something or they want to make an announcement, whatever the case is. Otherwise, it's bizarre. I've never heard of a team conducting a top executive availability concurrently with the locker room being open. Like, I've I've never seen that in my, what, 15 year career in this business. I've never heard of it. Like, I've never seen anything like it. So I hope that there's a reason for it because otherwise it just makes no sense. It just sort of feels like, you know, and, and I want to be clear that I'm not criticizing Canucks PR here, but it feels like a, a sort of continuation of, of odd organizational internal communication if there's not or an explanation for it. And that to me is, you know, for me, I'm like far more concerned about the day-to-day than anything else. Like, it, you know, we're, we're at a point with this organization where we're looking for like signs of, of you know, items to be confident about. Right, mm. uh, particularly given how the last few weeks have unfolded, right, and and one thing that's sort of beginning to pile up here is things like, you know, the 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 Pearson story, plus the Boudreaux story. These aren't the big picture moves that this Canucks team needs to nail over the long haul, right? This isn't the Kuzmenko contract, and does that make sense for a team in their position? This is the day to day stuff. How can you be confident in the team's long term vision or ability to like outcompete thirty one other teams in this league? If, if the day-to-day stuff's questionable, right? And and this, I hope that there's a reason for it, truly, because otherwise I'm just, you know, going to be sort of squinting with furrowed brows and being like, what is going on? What is going on here? Why is this all so messy day-to-day? Yeah, it, it, again, it's just two kind of odd things together happening <laughs> at the same time. And I want to be careful and fair about this, and then I do that. But, <laughs> I, I mean, truly, though, like, well, look, I think it, could... it is fair at the end of the day. I, I just, it it doesn't square. So, you like, you're not saying there's a big trade coming. I'm saying I hope yeah. there's a really good explanation for why today was so strange. The Canucks needed a roster spot. Alvin wasn't prepared to speak in the morning. And I hope we get the end of that sentence. I hope this Mad Libs gets filled out in some manner 
by, uh, we by will the time see. Puck, the puck drops. I should also note that uh, no presser from LV this morning. will be speaking post-game. He is also scheduled to be on Canuck Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah at 5.30 right here on 6.50 tonight. So you will have an opportunity to hear uh, from Patrick Alvin before the Canucks play the Columbus Blue Jackets tonight. No, nothing. I don't actually want to say anything. Right. We just got a text in that bothered me. Okay. Um, 650-650, by the way, you can send your text in, even if they're going to bother one or both of us. We will always appreciate it. So uh, the other thing, okay, so obviously, um, you know, people are texting in about Bo Horvat, and we have a, a pretty good idea of where this is headed right now. For the latest update, I wanted to play uh, this clip. Elliot Friedman was on Tim and Friends reacting to the Andre Kuzmenko deal, what it means for Horvat, and maybe some of the other pieces that the Canucks could make available before the trade deadline. Here's Elliot Friedman. Look, Horvat, look, if there was any question about whether or not they'd be able to sign him, we have the answer. Um, they signed Miller. Now they signed Kuzmenko. They're not going to be able to do Horvat, I don't think, and I think he's going to be traded. Uh, I think there's other players on that team that are going to be dealt to. I, I think Besser is going to be dealt. Um, I think at some point in time, I think Myers will be dealt, whether it's this year or after his bonus is due in the summer. Uh, I, I think they are going to try to move some other players out. We'll see what this all means. But, you know, I, I, know, I heard some people saying, well, they hope that if they keep Kuzmenko, that'll make Pedersen more likely to sign. I, I'm not sure I, I would say that. I, I don't know if it's quite that deep. Mm. But I, I, I do think they do speak to Pedersen quite a bit about what he thinks and what his feelings are. I, I just feel that they, they want to keep a nucleus. They've committed to Miller. They're going to make Pedersen their guy. I think they wanted to have another forward, Kuzmenko, around them so they could score. Um, and I think, But I think you're going to see a bunch of other guys moved, Horvat, Besser, um, Myers, and, and maybe Demko. I never thought I would say that, but I think we're getting to that possibility mm -hmm. too. I do think they're going to put a ton of players out there if they haven't already. That's Elliot Friedman yesterday on Tim and Friends on Sportsnet TV. And a lot in there, one, kind of throwing a little bit of water on the whole idea of, well, they had to sign Kuzmenko in order to keep Elias Pettersson and then list some of the names that he expects. Obviously, Bo Horvat, Brock Besser, no surprise, Tyler Myers, he says either now or after his bonus is due. I would certainly expect it more likely to be after they pay out his bonus and he only has one year remaining and then the big one obviously is you know he said I never thought I'd be saying it but maybe we're getting to a place where they make Thatcher Demko available as well now that's not saying they're shopping Thatcher Demko that's not saying they're gonna they're trying to trade him by the deadline or anything like that but it's also not it doesn't sound like idle speculation to me from Elliot Friedman either it sounds like there's a little bit of smoke there and it gets back to this idea of okay you've committed to the idea of a retool and you want to be competitive or you want to turn this around, whatever that means, in two years. But you're also prepared to move Bo Horvat and potentially Thatcher Demko. And look, either of those deals could end up making sense. It's just surprising to me in the context of what we've heard the goals are from this management. It, it, it still strikes me as maybe caught between a little bit, trying to do two things at once. And if you're doing that, are you going to be able to pull either of them off successfully? Well, I still think if you're if you are at any point dealing Demko, I, I think you're taking a step back. I mean, that's got to be the plan, right? You, you, well, based on what we've seen over yeah. the last couple months. I've seen this out. team play without Demko, and yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. No one does. So, yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I don't have a ton of – 
intel to comment on with Demko. The fact is, is that he's been out of sight and out of mind for so long, and yet these rumors have persisted, and his timeline is now extended. I mean, what, it's been eight weeks now since his injury? Mm -hmm. uh, he's going to miss at least the All-Star break, so we're going to be at, what, ten weeks by the time we get back? We still haven't seen him practice with the team. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I, I think are fair to wonder about. And, and you know, I don't want to speculate. I don't want to speculate even though the way, for example, this morning has gone has really invited speculation about exactly what's going on around this team. Aside from that, so the guys that Friedman name-checked, Besser, Myers, and Horvat. Horvat. And then he just says basically a lot. Those are the four names, Besser, Horvat, Myers, Demko, and then he also just alludes to a lot of players. Absent from that is Luke Shen, mm -hmm. which is interesting, right? I think we all expect Shen to be dealt. Shen's 33. I mean, this this is relatively straightforward, and I that is how the front office has been viewing it, and yet, you know, you look at the right-handed defensemen that are coming available in free agency this summer, and it's not a particularly robust list. I mean, we're no. talking about... As it often isn't at that position. Funnily, how, how those guys get it's locked really hard up to, to the find teams. good right-handed yeah. defensemen. Um, so you're you're kind of looking at names like Nick Jensen, Justin Hole, Matt Dumba, Damon Severson. You know, you're not really looking at needle-moving pieces here. And, and mostly you're looking at guys who are 28 to 32, right? Shen actually ranks second. Second! Among all NHL right-handed defenders poised to hit unrestricted free agency and points at the moment. You know, I don't buy the you should keep Shen for his leadership, but if you're trying to do a retool and you're looking at your options, I don't know that Luke Shen grades out as a terrible one given, the, given what the rest of the market looks like and what guys like Severson and Dumba who haven't even been that productive this season, and whose primary value is as offensive defensemen, not as defensive guys, um, would be poised to offer. So I'll, I'll run down, just by, by scoring, the top 10 pending UFA right-handed defensemen right now. So Nick Jensen, number one. And, and let's be clear, by the time you get past the top 10, you're already into like Kyle Burroughs territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, everyone knows how, how highly I think of Kyle Burroughs. But yes, but you're into... It's like, still as illustrative. The hardcore depth guys, yeah. right? Uh, Nick Jensen, Luke Shen, John Klingberg, Damon Severson, Connor Clifton, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, Matt Dumba, Scott Mayfield, Kevin Shattenkirk, and Michael Stone rounding out the top Con Ten. Con Connor Clifton's the only really good target there. And the thing about Boston, like, you know, the top unrestri pending unrestricted free agent scorer is David Pasternak. And we, like, don't talk about him the way we talk about other pending UFAs because it's like... No, we assume he's, it's going to get done. And and the, if the Bruins want to keep Clifton, they're going to keep Clifton. Come on. And, and they're going to want to keep Clifton. He's playing a lot more than Brandon Carlo, and his game is more suited. Right? He's, he's had fewer durability issues, he's probably going to cost less, and his game is better suited to the contemporary game. And, you know, you read, you go through that list, right, and the names that stand out, that jump out off the page to me as guys who the Canucks could plausibly be, plausibly be interested in, and we've heard them in, I think we've heard them in connection with both of these guys, Damon Severson and Matt Dumba. Now... You know, those are guys, they're not going to be 30 yet when they hit free agency, but they're they're pushing 30, as most guys are when they get to unrestricted free agency. Dumba's been a healthy scratch recently in Minnesota. You know, we hear pretty consistently that they are ready to move on from him. And I, 
here's the thing. So when when Rutherford and Alvin came in and they started talking so much about opening up cap space, I think a lot of us just kind of filled in the next part of that step as open up cap space so you can do kind of smart future-oriented things, right? Like, hey, take on a bad contract to get an asset. Do some of these things, you know, jump on the next John Marino, jump on the next Devontae's. But I think there's also a world where if you're trying to be competitive right away, if you're not necessarily willing to take that step back, that as soon as you free up cap space, you're dipping into the UFA market to fill out all these holes that have opened up on your roster. Right. And and then and then you're looking at targeting guys like Oscar Sunkvist and um, you know Damon Severson, who I like. But and just what we see time and time again is it is so hard to efficiently fill like key marquee spots in your lineup in free agency. Well, and it's the, really really hard to do. And this team's poised to lose. In Luke Shen, right, the second leading scorer among pending UFA defenders, a guy who's often played a top four role for this team. And one of the few guys whose consistency of effort is beyond reproach, mm-hmm. right? Like I wouldn't say there's a long list of guys on this team whom you would who you would say that about, but Shen is one of them. Yep, and, and a, a, a guy who can speak with a lot of credibility and honesty yeah. to the media, to other players. You would assume also in that locker room, like that. If you're losing Bo Horvat, that becomes important as well. And the other factor here, which is the you know, Bo Horvat's your best matchup center, and there ain't anybody like him on the market, right? He's the only other guy who's already hit 30 goals who's a pending UFA, right, behind David Pasternak. He's second by, like, eight points in scoring among pending UFAs. It's really hard to see how this team is better without Bo Horvat, which sort of brings you back to the Demko point, right? And, you know, first of all, Demko's value is distressed relative to where it would have been at the draft, for example, Mm -hmm. last season. I mean, you could have gotten an absolute haul. Think about how the market for goalies overheated this past summer, right? The a, a world where Jack Campbell makes more yeah. than Thatcher Demko is a world where Thatcher Demko is a massively desirable asset. Um, Especially, like, Thatcher Demko is a fascinating one because... Georgiev's a career, like, sub-900 goaltender, or, like, yeah. 905 goaltender, and he went for, what, a third and a second? Yeah, like, after this year, Thatcher Demko has three years left at $5 million, Okay. And I, so I think even, you know, there's these, this class of teams that never wants to spend on goalies, like, you know, your Carolina, your Toronto, or whatever. But if you're one of those teams, like... Five million is not even that's spending. That's not spending. No. <laughs> and it's only a three-year commitment. It's not a long-term commitment to a goalie. Like, that's an incredible asset that lots and lots of teams would be interested F- in. Five million is basically average or below starter territory, and you're getting a guy who you think can be elite. Yeah. You know, if he's healthy and... and so... The Demko thing's fascinating, and we'll see where it goes. I, again, I don't have hard intel, and, and I don't want to speculate too much on it, but I, I just don't understand how that would square. A lot of the rest of it, though, is like pending UFAs, which those should be tap-ins. Shannon Horvat should be a tap-in for this team, right? It, I mean, everyone knows what I thought about how they should have approached Kuzmenko, too. Mm-hmm. To me, that should have been a tap-in for this team. And then the other guys are guys on bad contracts. Yeah. Well, like... You're probably even, first of all, the organization a few years ago changed how they were doing bonuses and when they were due to be paid. And I believe, but I don't have this confirmed, so I want to note this, but like, I believe with justification about how the club was thinking about doing and structuring contracts at the time. So it's not like, I'm, it's not out of, I'm not pulling this out of thin air, mm-hmm. but I haven't confirmed like the specific language on Myers' deal. But I believe that bonus is due late in the summer. 
So it's not like uh, he gets paid on July 1st and right. then you make the deal and then you can go spend. Like I think it's a little bit more complicated than that if the team's trying to duck his bonus or trying to pay his bonus and then elevate his overall value. So that's a complicated one, I think. And then Besser, you know, whether you're retaining or, or something else, like I don't think that's a straightforward one either. And, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't know. Besser's obviously been extremely disappointing this year as a two-way piece. His finishing game has been distressed for a few seasons now, but he's also still a 65-point-per-82-game point producer over, like, 400 NHL career games who's still only 25. Like, he's a year and a half younger than Andre Kuzmenko. And, and Kuzmenko's on pace for what? Like, 70, 80-ish? Mm-hmm. But with massively inflated percentages. Like, there's a real chance that they're – very comparable pieces. Besser's the younger one, <laughs> and the club has just declined to net assets for that type of player, and then may have to do some stuff like taking back money or retaining salary, or or adding futures in order to get off of Brock. Like I don't know. I'm just waiting for someone to make this all make sense to me. Yeah, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see if anything comes from the Lane Peterson situation. Uh, we're on alert again. Who knows what exactly is going on? But uh, obviously, you'll hear it here first. Uh, next, we'll uh, we'll check in again on what else was happening at Morning Skate and hear from Canucks head coach Rick Tockett. It is Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 on a Canucks game day. Live from the Kintech studio, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Sportsnet 650 has teamed up with the Clayton Public House in Surrey to bring you the big football party on Super Sunday, February 12th. Hosted by our own Randy Janda. Reserve your table now at theclaytonpub.com. We'll have tailgate and drink specials plus prizes throughout the day. Kickoff is at 3.30 in the afternoon. The Clayton Public House. Good food. Good people. Good times. Uh, it is a Canucks game day. They host the Columbus Blue Jackets. I'll run you through the lines as they looked at morning skate today. Although it comes with a bit of an asterisk, obviously, as we, as we spoke about in the first segment. Lane Peterson... Uh, was on the top line when they skated. He has since been put on waivers. So who knows what will that will do to uh, how Rick Tockett's lineup looks. But anyways, here here's how they took the ice. It was uh, Pedersen with Kuzmenko and Lane Peterson. Horvat between Mikheyev and Besser. JT Miller at center between Dakota Joshua and Connor Garland. Curtis Lazar centering the fourth line with Sheldon Dries and Jack Stadnika. Phil Giuseppe was the extra on the blue line. Quinn Hughes and Ethan Bear. Ethan Bear makes his return uh, to the ice with the Canucks. OEL and Luke Shen and Riley Stillman and Tyler Mer- Tyler Myers, excuse me, Travis Dermott and Kyle Burrows, the extra pair on the blue line. So, I mean, a couple of notable takeaways, obviously, with again, with the caveat that uh, we don't exactly know what the Lane Peterson absence is going to do. Uh, Miller, still down the middle. We all expect that to get a long look. I do find it interesting that, you know, Studnika has gone from getting the early look uh, with Horvat and Besser down to the fourth line, remains on the fourth line, and that Sheldon seeing Sheldon Dries there again feels a little bit like 
you know, Tockett's already maybe sorting the guys he's excited about, the guys he's not excited about, and with Lazar, Dries, and Stanika on the fourth line. Uh, and then How can you not be excited about Dries? Don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I mean, Joshua, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see Joshua. Yeah, get I like a, Dakota Joshua. I also want to see Dakota Joshua get a chance to kill penalties. Like, why not? Why wouldn't we see that? It, it this is try stuff out time. Yeah, like, Rick, no, like what Rick's, do you what do you have to lose? Yeah, Rick Tockett was asked. You know, somebody mentioned, wouldn't you just love to have a mini camp next week or something? And he was like, Yeah, I would. Well, this whole the rest of the season is extended training camp. The rest of the season is extended preseason in terms of just, hey, let's see what we've got. Let's see what we can do with the pieces that we actually have here. And Dakota Joshua, you know, I mean, I was making the point the other day that, okay, it's great to be kind of trying to establish a certain culture, a certain work ethic, all of that, but how many of these players are actually even going to be here long term? Like, Dakota Joshua is at least a guy where there's upside. You can see, okay, if we can develop into something, either he fills a role for us, he becomes an asset, whatever. Like, he's one of the guys that you're trying to get more out of. And he scored in college, and then his AHL experience was polluted, Mm -hmm. right, by the pandemic and the weirdness that was – you know, what were they called? Taxi squads? Yes. And on and on, right? Yeah. I mean, it was just such a weird environment to be like a 23-year-old player. He, it's not like he had a, a real extended chance in, in the AHL. He's played one game where he got power play ice at the net front, and he scored. He scored in that game. Um, you know, I, like he's a little bit older than where you'd say like, hey, there could be some untapped offensive upside there, usually. Mm-hmm. But, but there's also guys whose development has been so odd, so different. So impossible to analyze with like usual the usual method of historical comps, and he's one of them. Where you know, I genuinely, I'm just curious to see if there's more there, and I, I think there might be. I, I like the idea of him playing on a line with a couple, you know, really good passers. I, I mean, all he has to do is sort of pick up that pooper scooper, skate around the ice, clean up messes, win some battles, forecheck, yeah, you know, a, a, do what he can to to have JT and and Connor Garland have the puck as much as possible, although the Canucks haven't had a lot of the puck when JT Miller's played center over the course of the season. So we'll see how it goes, but I like it. I like I like that look. I want to see – he's the example for me of a guy who I want to see get, a, get an extended look. And Stanika, meanwhile, I think is already very much on watch as, like, guy Rick Tockett may have figured out really quickly, mm-hmm. right? Going from first to fourth line in, in the Canucks' first game under Tockett as bench boss – uh, playing, being the low man in ice time in Seattle and then on the fourth line again tonight. I, I think that's very much a situation, you know, like when your dentist is going through your mouth and being like, watch on that one, watch on that one. I'm not saying it's a cavity yet, but it's on watch. <laughs> um, the other one that stands – well, I also do – Are you laughing at me because your oral health is impeccable? No, it's not, Or oral hygiene, excuse it's, it's me? It's not. Okay, fair enough. I, I, I had a long, um, like – gap in going to the dentist in my life for better no good, than for a long no, gap for no, in your yeah, teeth. for no good reason but i'm back i'm back at the dentist now so we're on track don't worry i'm fine uh anyways um <laughs> the other thing that stands out to me <laughs> oh, it's man. a friday show what yeah, are you gonna do yeah you're <laughs> let's, tell, just, you're, let's just get into you, some stuff you're telling the tooth yeah that's right uh the other thing that stands out is mckay of uh again going off the petterson kuzmenko line he's gonna be a horvat and besser I mean, look, everyone was bad in Seattle. I thought that line was noticeably bad relative to their standards. Like, so often they're the lone bright spot in a game for the Canucks, and they were also really bad. I thought McKayev played really poorly. 
again, it's hard to differentiate from what anybody else was doing in that game, but that's something else that kind of stood out to me uh, because you would think normally, like, okay, we have this group, this trio, if it's been really effective together, we're going to keep them, we're going to keep them together. Uh, but Tockett deciding to shuffle things a little bit there as well, and then on the blue line, okay, Hughes and Bear, I like that. Do you? I like the upside. I like I the idea. Like I don't like it. Um, I don't like OEL Shen. My my problem is my problem is you put Hughes and and Bear together, and you've got the two guys on this team who you trust to like go back when a puck's dumped in, and retrieve it and get the puck moving quickly the other direction. The, you're loading all of your eggs in one basket with that as a pair. And additionally, you know, with the way that Quinn Hughes plays, I think there's a reason that he's had the most success with guys who are hang back, clean up simplify the game you know and and Ethan Bear I still think like I I think really highly of him as a player but I do think there's some work to do in terms of managing the puck uh and in terms of the in-zone defensive stuff um in terms of embracing the matchup role like those are sort of the areas for growth for Bear and I don't know that playing with Hughes puts him in the best spot because those issues get magnified right the competition ramps up I I'd much prefer to see him add some speed to, you know, OEL's mm, pair, for example, mm -hmm. as opposed to loading up, you know, both of your best skaters. Yeah. We've also seen with that pair, they've crushed it from, like, a shot attempt differential perspective. But in terms of controlling quality and goals against, not so much. That, to me, feels like one of those pairs that's, like, a good idea on a spreadsheet, but not as much as, like... Well, not, not more than the sum of their parts as a partnership. I think it's also maybe a better idea if you have more of that puck-moving talent elsewhere in your lineup, right? Because then you look what you're left with, and like OEL Shen, that makes me really, really nervous, especially if the plan is to you know deploy them in tough minutes. Those guys both need somebody who can skate, who can get back and retrieve the puck, who can make the, who can get the puck going in the different direction. I think there's a lot of potential downside to OEL Shen. And then we've seen Stillman and Myers together this year as well. And the results have not been, uh, have not been pretty to the eye when those guys are together. It's another issue. There's not really like a stabilizing force on a Stillman Myers pair. So I, I like the idea of Hughes and Bear together, but then when you look at how the rest of the blue line shapes up behind it, I think there's plenty of reasons to be nervous. But again, hey, it's all about trying things out from this point of the season. All right, let's hear from Canucks head coach Rick Tockett uh, speaking to the media before the game. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a very skilled guy. You, know, you have another two years, uh, he can score. Um, it, we're excited that we have him, you know, um, there's work to do with him to be a complete player, but one thing is he can't score, and we're excited about that. What have you seen from him in the short sample size you've had here? Well, around the net, he's a bull. You know, that's where, you know, uh, and obviously he's a talented guy, but uh, a couple goals that he scored in Chicago are the goals that you want. The give-and-go game with uh, Petey, that was a hell of a goal. Um, but we got to work on his defense. we got to work on some, some habits that um, we have some good coach here to work on with to be a complete player. But definitely on that end, Excited. Two extremely different performances with you behind yeah. the bench. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of been the hallmark of this team, a, a crazy level of inconsistency. What are you hoping for? Now? Well, it's two versions, right? You got the, you know, it, it, but that, it's not that I wanted to see it, but it's it kind of gives me uh, some bullets. The way you play this team, the way they play the one night and the next. Now I get it. And I think there's a lot of anxiety and the, the couple of weeks or whatever hit them. 
Uh, and Seattle was ready for us. I mean, they had a great game plan. I thought it had a good game plan, but we just could not execute, and we just looked like we're in quicksand. But that's the, what I was trying to tell the players is str- good structure, you know, uh, you know, smart plays, you can overcome that. You know, you can win those games. You know, three to two, your goalie plays well, your power play well. You're not always going to have your A game, but we were just completely off page. No support. Uh, you know, I'm a meet pressure with pressure. We were going away from pressure. And I, so two versions of the team. So we'll see what we got tonight before the Rick, long break. it's not just the two versions of the team, but that might have been the best defensive performance, at least based on the scoring chances allowed against Chicago. And it was probably the most lopsided game they've yeah. played. I mean, that's even more extreme than well, the inconsistency we've seen to this point. Do you think the emotional letdown? Uh, I, I'm going to give them a break on that. I think the emotional uh, over the, this time has mm-hmm. kind of hit them. And I've been there before as a player when you don't have your legs and the motion hits you. But, you know, it's hard to do the right things every day. You know, getting in front of a guy, you know, chipping the body, you know, middle drive. You know, make sure you're in the slot covering this guy, boxing out. It's hard to do it. And you, you can, I might say it's easy to do it one game, but it's hard to do it. All the good teams do it every night are consistent. And we got a long way to go in this team to do that. And it starts with practice. When Whenever I can have a practice, it's, uh, it's going to even get worse in February. I'm going to puke right now. because I. <laughs> um, but that's where it starts, and it starts with the mindset. So With, uh, with that, we weren't in the scrum, but we all heard your commentary. Um, it's, it seemed like you had a little bit of a, a reaction to, to the way your team had played that night. Uh, something I wouldn't say an emotional reaction. In but, Seattle, you mean? Yeah, in yeah. Seattle. Uh, given a bunch of time to sort of reflect, um, is there anything you can take away from that game, or is it just thrown out? No, it's 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 actually you learn from it. Like you know, I, I've talked to a couple of players, some leaders today. We we're talking about it. How uh, you know we we kind of threw the game plan out the window. You know we. When, you know the coach. We have some great, great coaches. We have a game plan. There's a, we know Seattle when they get the puck, they're taking off, and we had a game plan for that. We didn't obviously execute. You know we didn't hold pucks. We, you know we just got to play a little harder. I know, and I know, like I said, it's it's back to back. I get all that, but good teams find a way to play the right way. And it's the you know most over cliched word. Uh, every th- the 32 coaches league will say the same thing: play the right way. It's about the mindset. Ex- executing is the hard part. Is the task in front of you? Yeah, I, I, I'm trying not trying. To be, I'm trying to be honest. I don't know what I have on certain aspects. I don't, um, but I know what I have in certain some some players. Um, but even before that stuff, we we got we have to get the mindset different around here. There's got to be more trust with it. Everybody in that locker room is you know, there's there's a little bit of mistrust, and um, that's my job to make sure it's trusting because that. Well, you start with the Chicago game, and then you build from that. But then, you know, obviously there's a little wrench in there with the, with the Seattle game. But everybody's looking for results. I'm looking for the process. And that, like, there's another overused word we like to use, but it's true. And it's a mindset. We've got to change the mindset around here. I've only been here a week, and there's, there's, there's got to be a different mindset and a different trust. There's no – the trust is there. We've got to find it. Is, is it trust in that, like, going back for a puck – you're, you're cheating it's every, it's, it's everything. It's trust the way you practice. It's trust uh, what you think of your teammate. It's trust as an organization. Every department has to trust each other. Uh, it's, it's everything, for sure. 
There's a month until the trade deadline. How much of your job? I'm sorry. There's a month till the trade deadline. How much of your job is giving your bosses, your new bosses, information? Code? Yeah, I, I think you know, great organizations, great teams. You know, the coach has to have a great communication with the the, the management. But you got to rely on departments too that that have watched these other players too. Um, but yeah, you'd like uh, you know some kind of input for sure. Your fresh eyes. I mean, that's kind of what yeah, I'm fresh eyes. hundred percent. You're the newest eyes to come in to say here's what's going on. Well, I, I think it's, you know, when you wear a Canuck jersey, what, what team are they? What's the identity? That's my big thing. When you play the Canucks, what type of team are they? You know, hard team to play against, smart team, you know, selfless team. Those are the, the, the attributes you wanted that I want to find for the Canuck logo. You know, that's something we got to find here. Rick, does it worry you that when we and Canucks fans hear your postgame in Seattle, it's like we've heard – this yeah. is the third guy we've heard sound like this yeah. over the course of 14 months. Does that concern you at all, or does that just lay apparent what your task is here? Yeah, I can't speak for other guys. I just know where I am, and um, that's why I, uh, I brought the staff I brought in because I have high character. Right? Trust me, I come in here naked here, I'd be in trouble. But I got some unreal player like Adam Foote, character guy, Sergey Gonchard, quality gentleman character guy. Yosi's been around, smart guy. You know, I, I got the twins who have offered to help me, and they want to roll, and I've, I'm giving them a big piece of the pie. So I'm lucky I got, like, some really good guys around me to help me. Rick, can you walk us through what's happening with Lane Peterson? Like, he was just out on playing with Pedersen because Menko gets reassigned to the AHL we just saw announced. It's all, like, paperwork type of thing. You know, you, like, players like him, you know, he's trying to make it, right? And, uh, you know, we'd like them to – you know, I haven't really talked to the guys upstairs yet, but about you know, continue this week developing himself by playing play maybe down at Abbotsford. We haven't, I haven't decided, we haven't decided that yet. But you know, I talked to Peter. I'd want to play. Like if you're trying to make the NHL, uh, and the only reason I put them together, I think they had some success a week ago or something. Somebody told me that, so see if it helps. Is, is someone coming up or? Well, we, we got to talk. We got to mm. talk about that stuff. Do you have any idea when Badger Demko might be back? Uh, I'm not a big, I don't want to give you a time frame, but you know, whether it's a couple weeks, two, three weeks, but he is making some good progress and he's, he's, yeah, right. Yeah. That is Rick Tockett, uh, Canucks head coach speaking to the media before they face Columbus tonight. And you heard him just reference that still has to talk to, uh, management about the Lane Peterson situation at the end there. So not really shedding any light on it, but, uh, the new word. We've heard, you know, habits. We've heard uh, uh, structure a lot. Uh, throw trust into the mixture. Rick Tockett speaking at length about a lack of trust, mistrust in the locker room. They need trust on the ice. They need trust in the locker room. They need trust at every level of the organization. And it doesn't exist anymore right now, Drance. That is what stood out for me in a big way. Yeah, in a big way. I mean, I tried to pick at it and sort of get more specific into what he meant. Um, but, you know, he was general about it, which is al- honestly almost more concerning to your ears, right? Like, well, he expanded everything. it. He expanded yeah. it. it wasn't, he didn't just mean, you know, you have to trust that somebody's going to be in the right place on the ice. He expanded it to off the ice, to different levels of the organization. There needs to be that trust, right? Like, he, he was the one who kind of took it to that level in that availability. Well, and, and I'd add, you know, you think about the trust that's, Trust and buy-in are basically synonyms. Mm. You know, like, how do you get someone to buy-in? They have to trust the vision you're selling, right? 
And you think about all of the stuff that we've been talking about over the course of a month that's gone really off the rails for the organization, the medical side, right? The Boudreaux side, the, the idea of rattled faith in this marketplace, right? It's, it's also trust with this market, with the ticket buying public about the direction of this team. Like, I mean, it's a really interesting formulation because especially when it, once it gets generalized, because I think it can apply to basically everything we've seen unfold around this team over the course of a, a really tough season. Honestly, this when you think about all of the different things that have cropped up, it's hard to remember a year like this. Yeah, there really is. And I mean, we thought we thought that was last year, right? And then Bruce Boudreau comes in and takes on a completely different tenor. And this one is just and you know credit like I find. Rick Tockett's perspective on the team interesting and like I think we're learning things from him coming in and and talking about the team but it's not the same injection of positive vibes and all of a sudden everyone feels great about the team right it's like telling some hard truths which could be good in the long run but it still just kind of feels like there's this there's this sense of I don't want to even say disarray but just kind of no disarray I think is the right word I think whatever word you want to use it well, I mean, even trust that, like, you come in in the morning and you see your name on the whiteboard, especially if it's on the first line, are you getting waved an hour later? Like, is that part of it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think but think to the Tanner Pearson situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a, a bond of trust that has to be incredibly solid between the players and the medical oh, staff. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, no question. I the So, I, wa- I want to... I want to explain for listeners, like, the impact of the whiteboard. Because you remember the Brock Besser scratch story yep. from December? I mean, I know that's like 18 controversies <laughs> ago, so maybe we've forgotten it. But you remember that scrum. If you remember that scrum and think back to it, you know, the the way I formulated it with Besser, because it was me who asked the question, was like, you come in in the morning and see your name not on the whiteboard, how do you you know, react knowing what today means. And that was sort of where he got reflective. On a hockey team, right, the the coaching staff sort of like the metronome day-to-day, right? Like the heartbeat of the player experience stems from the head coach. And every day when you come in to the locker room, and, you know, even, even, as, even as a PR guy, so speaking from my own experience, the first thing I did every day was I walked into the room – and just looked at what was written on the white because then I know what to anticipate in terms of storylines. I know what to anticipate, mm-hmm. you know, like before I get injury updates or like what's going on today, I can pr- pretty much tell based on what the lineup looks like. And so for players, you walk in every day and it's like the the metronome telling you where you stand and what your job is that day, right? Where you're lining up tells you, speaks volumes to you about like, if you're in a consistent spot, you know your team's probably rolling, you're probably relatively established, on and on, right? Like, it, it's such a crucial part of the player. You come in, you see where you're at, right? And, and you know immediately. And when it's weird, right, because you're on the top line and then you're on waivers or because you're a scratch on a day that means something of significance to you, that's what sort of interferes with the idea of like a, a, like a safe space. And I'm trying to think of like an analogy in like a normal place of work, but it's like, I'm sure everyone who works here has like a schedule that goes out on a spreadsheet. Yeah. And like, if you look at it and see, you don't have any shifts that week, you're like, Oh man, am I or in if trouble? you have something unexpected, yeah. right? Oh, I, I, I've been called to a meeting with HR. 
<laughs> you know, like you can tell, you know the vault, you know the language within the language of your own workplace, and all these players do too. And when it's disrupted, you know, it it it, it causes even when it's disrupted, not for you, but for another colleague. And even if that colleague is a junior colleague, it's like, what's going on? That's again. That's why I hope that another shoe drops here at some point tonight. Just because otherwise, I think that's that runs contrary to me to one of the most sort of honest things that Patrick Alvin said on Sunday during the availability. Let's create that safe environment. Let's create the environment where players can be their best versions of themselves. Right. And the and the Lane Peterson thing. I know Canucks fans. I'm sure are yelling at their radio right now. Like, who cares? It's Lane Peterson. But like. It's not that. It's about the day-to-day functioning, healthy functioning of an organization. And if that's not happening, that's how you get the sort of mistrust that Rock, that Rocket, that Rick Tockett discussed today. Uh, we'll take a break. Dave Nonis, former Canucks general manager, uh, making his return to the show. Up next, very excited to chat with him. It is Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Happy Friday. Happy Canucks game day. It's Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit. At Kintech.net, 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dave Nonis, former Canucks general manager, is going to join us uh, momentarily here. Lots to get into with Dave. It's been a little while since we had a chat with him. And uh, it's been a very, very eventful uh, month for the Vancouver Canucks. So looking forward to that chat. I also want to say, uh, at 1.30, very excited for this, uh, my old pal Scott Rintoul is going to join us on the show to talk about the uh, very exciting podcast Uh, about the West Coast Express that he has coming up. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, But first, right now, we are joined, as I mentioned, by former Canucks general manager, longtime NHL executive, Dave Nonis. Dave, thanks for making time as always. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure always. We look forward to it. And uh, as I was just saying, I mean, uh, it's been a few weeks since we've had the opportunity to chat. It's been a very, very eventful time for the Vancouver Canucks, they've made a coaching change, and, and I want to start there. From a front office's perspective, what goes in the decision to make a coaching change mid-season like the Canucks did this month? Well, there's a couple reasons for doing it. Uh, one is you're you're a team that's maybe underperforming but has Stanley Cup aspirations. You're still in it. Uh, you think if you make a coaching change, it'll spark your group and you can you know go on to the playoffs and have a healthy postseason. You know, the other uh, side of the coin is your team isn't performing um, and you, more importantly your younger players aren't developing at the rate that you want them to develop and mm. um, so just losing isn't necessarily the only part that goes into it you know if you think that you're you're regressing as a team your younger players aren't getting better players that you think are going to be part of your future and uh, part of your team when you when the window opens for you to have a championship you know, at that point, it's you know it's incumbent upon management to make that change, but that's a determination that you have to make as a management group. Dave, can you shed some light on the thought process that managers put into 
timing and handling the announcement of a, a head coaching change, uh, particularly given what we saw unfold in Vancouver over the course of the past 10 days? Yeah, I mean, you want it to be as tight as possible. You'd like to have the, you know, the change happen within a day or, or two at the most. In some cases, you have have to put a bridge in there for an interim coach, but you 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 know you don't want it to, to drag out. You mm-hmm. you want to make the change, get the coach uh, let go, get the new coach hired, brought in, and do that as quickly as possible. You know, like the the situation in Vancouver. I, I mean, obviously, it didn't go well. Um, I think if you ask the coach, the uh, management staff there now if they would do it differently, they would say yes. Um, you know, uh, you know, Bruce was was kind of hanging there for quite a long period of time, which I think everyone felt was was unfair. I mean, the the one guy that I think shouldn't be blamed for any of this, um, and I think it's natural, is a little bit of animosity would be Rick Tockett. You know, he yeah. just took a job. He didn't wasn't part of the of the process of letting Bruce go, but. You want it as tight as possible for a bunch of reasons, you know, for the people that are, that are changing their lives, their coaches, uh, and for the players. You want to you know, you want to get things back under control as quickly as you can. Now, Dave, it was a different time in terms of media coverage, right? And it was a very different uh, level of sympathy <laughs> for the head coach in this particular market at that moment in time, but. The Mike Keenan to Mark Crawford change that your organization or that the organization in Vancouver made when you were, uh, I think you were probably director of hockey operations or VP hockey, uh, hockey operations at the time, uh, sort of played out a little bit similarly, except the Canucks weren't on a homestand and that there was, you know, a, a couple of days where perhaps the media had, had gotten a sense of, of what was coming. What what do you remember about that process and, and how it unfolded? And, and were, were you and Brian at any point sort of, at that time, considering, uh, you know, changing direction or, or did the, the fact that the public saw it coming change how you guys thought about making that change at the time? No, we, we felt that we had to make a change based on, you know, the topics I said earlier. We didn't think our team was, was developing uh, at the rate that we needed it to. We wanted to change direction and look of the group. My recollection of that change was it happened over All-Star break. Right. Um, and it was, uh, so there was a few days there where the team was – was a part. I know Brian was was trying to uh, get a hold of Mark and and start the negotiations there to see if there was a willingness for him to take that job. And then once it looked like we were we were going to be able to hire Mark Crawford, uh, then uh, Brian went about trying to get a hold of Mike. But yeah, we weren't together as a group um, when that happened. It was it, it was um, I'm pretty sure it was the Tampa All Star game when that yeah. took place. Yeah, and uh, when that when that got out, did it? change how the news was delivered or how it was rolled out once uh, once Crawford and and you know just to remind the audience when you guys landed Mark Crawford he was the hottest thing in coaching at the time right I mean it was a huge coup for the organization but was the rollout in any way impacted by the fact that it had gotten out and perhaps not been as tight as you guys would have preferred uh, probably a little bit but again the the biggest problem was was Brian trying to find Mike Keenan who I think was up at Whistler <laughs> um, during, the, during the break, so it was one where there there wasn't a, uh, an opportunity to to get a hold of Mike. That was with the the bit of a lag. But you know, again, if you could do it uh, just as you know one fell swoop, you definitely want to do it that way. And and I think we talked about this before. When you you make the determination that you have to make a change, then you you act on it. You know, when uh, when I let Mark Crawford go, 
I actually had flown to Europe for the world championships. I landed mm. there. I didn't leave the airport. I got back on a plane and flew home because on the flight over, I made the determination we had to make a change. And it wasn't fair to Mark just to, to let him sit there and wonder what, what his future looked like. So once once I made that determination, I went back and made the change and and ultimately put uh, Elaine Vino in there. Dave, when a coach comes into a situation like this and, you know, the probability of making the playoffs for the Canucks at this point is, you know, beyond remote, um, what does management look for in terms of evaluating uh, a new coach's performance down the stretch of a lost season? There's going to be a couple things that they're going to look at. I mean, obviously the team needs to tighten up defensively. Um, you know, they're giving up way too many goals. They can score you know, with some of the top teams in the league, but keeping the puck out of the net's been a challenge. I, I think that special teams, particularly, the, you know, the penalty kill is going to be something they'll continue to focus on. And, and again, I think it's the development of the younger players and the commitment of some of their top players to play, to play defense. You know, it's, um, it's easy to say we should bring in really good defensive players uh, and that'll change the fortunes. But I, I think a, a bigger part is having some of the offensive players buy into the team system. Mm. One thing I think that Rick Tockett has done a good job at over the course of his career when he didn't have a whole lot of talent was to get some of those players to buy in and, and play a good, you know, hard defensive style. So I think they're going to look at a bunch of things. The development of the players, the younger players, are they, are they getting better? And then as, a, as a group and as a unit, is this team becoming a little harder to play against? And, you know, one of the things with uh, Bruce Boudreaux was that he was hired before either Jim Rutherford or Patrick Alvine were put in position for the Canucks. So, you know, there might have been some communication, but they didn't choose him as the coach. Now management has had the, an opportunity to choose the guy they want behind the bench. How important is it to have that alignment and that type of relationship where, you know, everyone from the coach to the general manager to the president are on the same page? Uh, it's very important. You know, I think that the you're, you want your coach to to want to play the style that you think will eventually lead the team to success. You don't want a coach that's going to play run and gun. If you want to play more of a tighter uh, defensive system, you want to make sure that you are aligned. You don't have to be the you know best friends and and you know, taking family vacations. But you have to be able to get along. You have to be able to communicate, and you have to think the same way. I mean. When, again, I'll go back to Elaine. When, when we put Elaine uh, as the head coach, he wasn't the most qualified coach that we had interviewed. Um, he was just the coach that I felt best fit how I wanted to go forward. And, you know, we had a really good relationship. We we spoke daily. We talked about the team on, you know, on, on a daily basis. Um, would always ask his input. He would ask mine. That's the kind of relationship I think that you need to have with your with your head coach and uh, it's hard to have that if you're not the guy who put him in. One of the things we just heard actually just uh, an hour or so ago from Rick Tockett talking to the media before the game today was that there needs to be, they need to reestablish trust here in the organization. And, you know, he meant it not just between players on the ice, but really between all different levels of the organization. If a team, a franchise has had a breakdown of trust like that, how do you go about rebuilding it? Well, I think you have to start at the top. And I think when you when you say you're going to do something, um, you know, whether it's from ownership or management or the coaching staff, I think that you have to follow through with it. And it, it could be you know, some small issues or it could be some big ones. But if you say you're going to do something, I think that you have to follow through it and, and do it if you want to start to rebuild that trust. 
I, I listen. Vancouver is a very, very uh, smart hockey market. It's a passion hockey market, but but I think it's a pretty forgiving one too. And I, I think mm. if they do uh, if they do um, follow through with their promises, um, I think that you'll build trust from the players to the coaches, the coaches to the manager, and then they'll you know that'll feed out to the fan base. But it may take some time. It's not something you can just you know, turn over. If there's a lot of uh, animosity and vitriol in the in the marketplace right now. It might take a little while to get rid of it, but it, it, I think it can be done in a market that's that's as smart and savvy as the Vancouver market is. Dave, this season has been one of those tough ones for the organization, so we've been churning through controversies at a pretty high rate, um, You know, even a higher rate than we usually do in a, in a market that tends to be prone to these. Um, one thing that we never got a chance to ask you about was there was sort of a, a suggestion from a Canucks player that a medical situation hadn't been handled right. Um, the club held a press conference to address it. The PA and the NHL have met about it. Those are the facts as we know them at the moment. Um, is, is that something you've ever dealt with in your career? And how, how sacrosanct does the trust between players and medical personnel have to be? You know, we always had, I felt, a top-notch medical staff uh, mm-hmm. in Vancouver and in, in Toronto when I was there. But that is important that they trust the the, uh, the medical staff. One thing that you know players do have the right to do is seek a, a second opinion. Uh, if it's something serious, most players or a lot of them will do that. Um, not all, but I, it was you know my feeling, and I expected that if I had a player that needed surgery um, and it was somewhat significant, that very often they would ask for a second opinion, which they were entitled to. Um, but besides that, you, you still want the best possible staff uh, that you can you can put together with your team because uh, you, you want the players to trust that they're getting top-notch medical care. You know, without knowing all the facts, and I know the situation you're talking about, uh, without knowing all the facts, it's, it's impossible to comment mm-hmm. on that case. Um, but I'm, I'm certain that the, the Canucks medical staff that they put together is, is a quality staff. You're going to, you know, you're going to see some, situations during the course of a year where players um you know might need to, to look outside and get that second opinion for some some medical work dave one thing in the pacific division that's interesting and, and been on my mind particularly as i watched seattle uh crush vancouver earlier this week is the success of these two expansion teams now um you know these are the first expansion teams we've seen in the hard cap era and they are right now at the top of the Pacific Division standings, almost right out the gate. We know what Vegas did right out the gate, but Seattle now, after one dry run season, which wasn't so successful, seems to have built something pretty imposing here and maybe even durable. Um, how much of the immediate success that we've seen from the expansion cousins is because of the robust process in your view? And how much of it is just that starting from scratch in the hard cap era is a massive advantage? Um, I think there's a few few ways to look at that. I think starting mm-hmm. from scratch uh, is beneficial if you get to pick the type of players that both those teams did. You know, the, the expansion rules were, were fairly favorable, and both teams did a good job of adding quality players, some quality veterans. Uh, in the case of Seattle, you know, they, they created uh, some cap space and left some cap space so they were able to, to trade for, you know, Bjorkstrand and sign some free agents this summer that really helped them. Uh, so I think the rules have helped them a little bit, and they were smart about how they spent their money. 
You know, mm-hmm. they they didn't just spend to sign anybody. They they looked to to sign players they felt you know could augment their lineup going forward. And I think they did a very good job of doing it. But if you look at their you know their team, especially Seattle, it's not a lot different this year than last year, other than a few notable um, additions. And and those were timely. They were timely trades and timely signings. So uh, they have they have some experience. They have obviously a very good rookie and uh, Matty Beneers. Yeah, um, I, I think that they've done a, a good job of of laying the foundation for a team that should be competitive for a long period of time. In conversation with former Canucks general manager, also former Toronto Maple Leafs general manager, longtime NHL executive Dave Nonis here. And one of the other things happening around the Canucks right now is obviously, you know, we're just over a month from trade deadline. And with the Andre Kuzmenko extension announced yesterday, all signs are pointing towards Bo Horvat being on the move. It's obviously not official, but that's what a lot of people are expecting. How do you manage the relationship between the team and a player when they are kind of in this this kind of limbo where you're everyone's expecting him to be traded, but he's still here. He's still the captain. He's still playing big minutes for you. How do you manage that situation? Well, I think the player has done a really good job of, of you know tuning things out and, and just keeping focus on his game. Uh, everything I've seen, all of his comments have been very professional. Um, this isn't one where he's going to be surprised if he wakes up, uh, you know, the next Tuesday morning and gets a phone call. He's been moved. You know, this is one where I think he he sees it coming. They haven't been able to reach a deal, um, so there's really no no expectation for the player to to be here past the deadline. Um, with that said, I think there can be some frustration, even with players that know they're going to possibly be moved, um, of not knowing where they're going to go. A little bit of uh, uh, being you know nervous energy um, that can develop. I don't sense that's the case with Bo Horvat. He he really d- does seem to be focused on having a good year. He's, all of his comments looked that he's still very uh, in tune with the team and wants them to have success and, and develop. It's just a situation where they may not be able to sign him, and if that's the case, they don't have any, any choice but to trade him. One question we get a lot from our listeners is, you know, they're concerned that Bo Horvat is going to be injured between now and the trade deadline, and they're asking, uh, should the Canucks ever consider resting Bo Horvat until they have a trade in place? Would Would a move like that ever enter into consideration for you as a GM if you had a, a player as valuable as Bo Horvat with the deadline approaching? No, not this far out. I think you have to play the player for a number of different reasons. You know, there's some competitive issues with the playoffs for other other organizations. If they're coming in and playing a team that's completely being arrested and they're getting two extra points when the next night they, do, they put Bo Horvat back into the lineup. So there's some competitive challenges with that. If you're close to a deal, uh, pulling a player out of a lot, out of the lineup if you're you know close to a trade, I think that's that's acceptable. I think you see it on a regular basis, but when you're this, this far out, you, you can't just sit the player. It's it, it doesn't look good optically, and it, and quite frankly, I think the player would resent it. Dave, how difficult is managing trades for? players of this quality when you know especially now where where the question of like should he be allowed to talk extension and and on and on looms large um did you ever have a process where it unfolded and you permitted the player to player's agent to have sort of wide-ranging conversations with rival teams or is it a situation where you kind of have to have a, a framework in place before you cross that bridge I think you have to have a framework work in place. If yeah. listen, if you're if you've got a deal that 
you think he would take, but it's predicated upon the player signing, and the player is going to get moved regardless. Uh, I think in in those situations, it's quite common for the team to be able to you know talk to the the agent. And I'll go back to last year. Ampus Lindholm was traded to Boston. They gave up quite a few assets um, in terms of volume, and he was signed probably less than 24 hours later. I'm quite certain, and I don't know for for a fact, but I'm quite certain that that contract was done beforehand, and it would have been done uh, with the permission of the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, and this, to me, that was a, a win-win for both teams. Boston ended up picking up arguably a top three defenseman who's having a career year, able to sign him at a good number for you know for five or six years, um, and it worked out quite well. I don't think you want to have teams negotiating with your players if there's not a, a deal that that's really on the table. I think once you get to that point, then you can talk about making, you know, making a move. Uh, if it's, if it's purely rentals, it's different. And I think if I'm going to pay the price that it's probably going to take to get Bull Harvard out of Vancouver, um, I, I would like to at least try to uh, talk to his agent and get him signed. Dave, just before we let you go, uh, in our next segment, we're going to chat with our uh, our pal Scott Rintoul, who has a, a podcast series about the West Coast Express line coming out soon. And uh, I, I think, uh, Scotty, talked to you for the podcast. But just, you know, you were with the organization when Morrison, Bertuzzi, and Nasland uh, ended up on a line together and had that kind of instant chemistry. What do you remember about those guys getting together and just kind of the instant success that they had? Yeah, you know what? It was a different era back then. We were at a, we were at a time where goals were declining. Uh, I think the skill and excitement of the game as we see it today was not on display, um, and that line was kind of the opposite of that. They they got together and there was a spark right away. They you know for two or three years, well two years in particular, I think you can make the case that it was the best line in, in the league. And um, you don't often see guys have that kind of chemistry, but it was the right kind of line. You know, Marcus was a, a true professional. Uh, he was a great craft, captain and a great leader. Um, Todd was a great power forward at that point, and he was willing to pay the price to get those goals. You know, some could say he didn't do it enough over the course of his career, but during that stretch, he, he did it. And Brennan Morrison was the guy that, you know, really he was was the, the, the player that, that was, I wouldn't say um, the most important, but it's hard to play with players like that, you know, with, with, with that skill and with those kind of, personalities and Mo did a great job so it was one where I didn't really see Brennan being you know a number one center I thought he was more of a number two but once he got there he helped both those two guys become the players that they were and it was a it was a great line well and from what I've heard Brendan Morrison really had it you mentioned it there like the personality and the and the mindset to be you know the third guy on that line but kind of key, he, he was kind of the glue guy of the line right yeah no question like so when I mentioned personalities you know, uh, Nazi was easy to get to get along with. Mm. You know, Bert could could have a little crank on once in a while, and, and Mo didn't put up with it. He would just he was he was the, the the guy that would keep that line together and keep them going. And you know, they were they were close friends, but there were times when there was some animosity there. And I think Brendan did a good job of of keeping that line as effective as it was. Dave, we really appreciate the time. Happy to have you back on the show. We look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks, Dave. Sounds good. Take care, guys. That is former Canucks general manager and also former Toronto Maple Leafs general manager Dave Nonis. Someone <laughs> I, chided I love that. me. You, yeah, I know you got well, someone you chided got me. It's like, well, look, it's a Canucks show, so I'm I'm saying he's a former Canucks guy and he's been around the league doing also, other things. Also, I mean, 
I'm not trying to disrespect his time in Toronto. Guy, guy was guy was here for parts of like the Pat Quinn era. Come yeah, on. he's this been is, here. This is, he's a he's, he's a Vancouver he's guy. He's from Burnaby. Yeah, he's from Burnaby. Like he's a Vancouver he's a Vancouver kid. Done good. Stop it. It's like when we have a former player on, I don't list all the other teams well, they played for. We also have someone who texts in every day to ask me if I'm from Florida. It's like yes. <laughs> I'm from Florida. There are we do get a lot of questions about like your biography. <laughs> are you from Toronto? Are you from Florida? Where are you from, Drant? Where are you from? As if it's this great mystery. Carisdale. <laughs> there we go. We settled it. Uh, as mentioned, former colleague Pal Scott Rintoul is going to be on the show next. Uh, he has a new podcast. It's called Unreal West Coast Express, a limited run podcast about the West Coast Express line that is premiering next week. Really excited to chat with Scotty about that uh, final segment of the show of the week coming up here on Sportsnet 650. <laughs> Welcome back to Canucks Talk, final segment of the week. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strands here, live from the Kintech Studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, now very pleased to be joined in the broadcast gondola here at Rogers Arena. Former colleague, our pal, longtime Vancouver broadcaster, Scott Rintoul, what's going on, buddy? It's good to see you. <laughs> Try that. Now I think the last time Rintoul. I was here, my mic got turned off too. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back. We're we're already hearing some. Hey, Rintoul, I miss your show more than I miss the Canucks winning from Minor Matt in Abbotsford. So you're being welcomed back with open arms by Canucks Talks listeners. We're glad to have you, and we're glad to hear more about your project. Tell the listeners what you're doing. West Coast Express. Let's go. And you just go with that. Say those three words in this area, and people get a smile on their face generally. And that's what this is. This is a long-form docu-series, if you will. Some will call it an oral history. I'm not really sure how you want to label it. I call it a docu-series. It's their story in their words, how that team came together, what it meant to this city, to this franchise long-term, and we all know the downfall of it as well, which – certainly will be touched on and covered within the course of this podcast. Why Why the West Coast Express for the project? It's such a good story, Jamie, and that has been with me for a really long time. It transcends, to me, the Canucks. It transcends hockey. It's just a good story. If you think about it just on the surface, what is the likelihood of three players drafted by other organizations, acquired by three different general managers, two years apart from each other, winding up on the same line, let alone the same team, and all of a sudden, it's the best line in hockey. Like, what are the chances of that happening? If you have one of these guys, you keep them. You keep them. But for one reason or another, they all needed out of the organization they were with, and they all ended up in Vancouver, again, with three different general managers who had different views of what this team was ultimately going to be, and all of a sudden, they're the best line in hockey, the most exciting line in hockey. Which general manager do you credit for Bertuzzi? <laughs> right? Because it was the triumvirate at the time. Who, who are you crediting? And it's technically Keenan in my mind because yeah. he's the guy who forces Linden out. Right. And ultimately, that's what that deal was about. And the Keenan detractors will say, ah, he had no idea what he was getting back. He just needed Trevor gone. And I'm sure those close to Mike Keenan will say, no, he had an idea what he was getting back. And he's pretty happy with the return. We, we all know Brian McCabe was the most established player at the time, but 
Bertuzzi, McCabe, Rue 2 for Trevor Linden. They sold at the peak. And then they ultimately bring him back, so everybody gets to have their cake and eat it too, don't they? S selling high, you say. It's funny. <laughs> it's, it's funny well, how that can work I, out sometimes. I, I remember asking <laughs> Tony Gallagher who he thought, because I was trying to parse it when I was writing my book. I said, who do you think of the three made the trade? And he goes, which of the three would have the stones to trade Trevor Linden? And I always thought that was the most compelling argument you could make for why it was Keenan. <laughs> Um, we just had so true. There's a lot of reasons why it's an interesting story, but one of them that hadn't necessarily occurred to me. We just had Dave Nonis on, mm -hmm. and one of the things he mentioned when I brought it up was, you know, you have to understand how different the NHL was at the time. Like this was the dead puck era. We're so used to seeing, you know, six five games and teams coming back from three nothing or whatever it is, especially if you're watching a Canucks game uh, this year. But it was not like that at all. And then all of a sudden, these guys get put together and they're playing a style of hockey that just. That wasn't what was going on around the league at the time. Which is why they became such a phenomenon around the NHL, let alone in Vancouver. Canucks fans wanted something, needed something, needed hope. And I think Canucks fans at present can relate to that to a certain degree. And, Thomas, you and I can talk about this, but it was worse in the late 90s. <laughs> it really was yeah. because this building that we're sitting in right now was half full. And that's not the case right now as – as angry as people might be, as frustrated as they might be with what they feel is the direction or lack thereof right now, it wasn't as bad as it was back then. And these guys came out of that rubble and formed this group that took the league by storm because the point you make is a great one. This is a time where there were scoring titles being won where nobody got to 100 points. Yeah. Nobody. Like Jerome McGinley won a scoring title, and it wasn't a three-digit number, and two and three were Nasland and Bertuzzi, and yeah, Marcus gets over the 100-point plateau the next year, but again, two and three in league scoring. Same line, same team, players who had come from a different organization. Man, it was a different time, and they were a draw everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think people don't understand either just how dominant those two were from a scoring perspective relative to the rest of the league. Let me, let me read you this stat. From 2001 and 2002... To 2003-2004, this is a period of time that covers three complete seasons of NHL hockey. Number one in the NHL in scoring, Marcus Nasland, 278, over three seasons. Number two, Todd Bertuzzi, 242. There's a 30-point gap between Marcus Nasland and his line mate, who are, who's second in scoring over that time. I mean, they were playing a different sport. Yeah, they certainly were. And even if like you can relate it to the rest of the league as well, because that dead puck era, one of the things that sums it up to me is, and there's so many different stats you can pick, mm. but over a decade, there were five players in total in the NHL from 93-94 to 10 years later that scored 25 power play goals or more in a single season. Todd Bertuzzi's one of them, and the other four are in the Hall of Fame. Their names <laughs> like Merrill Lemieux, Brett Hull, Timu Solani are the guys we're talking about here. That's how dominant a season they had in that one year, 02-03. It's the 20-year anniversary this year of, of that line, their biggest season ever. That remains the highest-scoring single-season total any line has produced in Canucks history. Better than the Henrik Sedin scoring title. Better than the Daniel Sedin scoring title. No line has produced that many points in one season in Canucks history. Wow. Since then. Scotty, give us a sense of the scope of this project. So how many episodes are we getting? And this isn't just about these three gentlemen. This is about a moment in time for an organization. Is that right? It really is. And this spans nine episodes. And I'm going to take you back to the end of 1994 because mm -hmm. I don't think you can truly understand the impact of that group and that team 
without realizing how tough it was in Vancouver at the time. Four years after, IMAX got this great quote. He says, four years after they were in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final, the organization was in complete and utter chaos, and it really was. And so we start there, take you through to where things were at, how these players got acquired, and then the confluence of events that led to them getting together, forming this line, and the highs they hit despite not having much success in the postseason, which I think is such a compelling part of their story as well. I really do, because we're living in an age right now where it's, oh, they didn't win the cup, burn it all down, do it again, which tends to make people think, well, those other stories don't matter. Mm. Well, they do matter, because there's a group of Canucks fans out there and hockey fans, let's just put it there, that started watching this game because of those three guys, because of Ed Jovanovsky, because of this reckless abandon with which that team played in an era that was safe and, as it's been called, the dead pucker. <laughs> I remember during the 50th anniversary season when Nasland, Smeal, and Linden were here to see their banners updated uh, above the ice, and the Nashville Predators were in town. So it's like a bunch of kids from the Lower Mainland and a bunch of Swedes, and... Marcus Naslin walks by and like a bunch of NHL players are just starstruck. And it was this moment for me where I realized like what Burray was to me for Kyle Turris, Colton Sissons, Philip Forsberg, Naslin was to them. I never really understood that until that moment. It's amazing the power that that line had from the uh, sort of red-pilling hockey fans' perspective. You're right, and it's all because of that dead puck era and because of where the Canucks have been just prior to right. that. And Marcus Naslin himself is such a great story. I mean, here's a guy who asks out of what is a star-laden roster in Pittsburgh. Why would you do that? And why didn't it work better? Well, Naslin wasn't ready for it. They didn't really have enough ice time for him. He winds up here and comes this close to leaving because things are so off the rails with the organization that he isn't sure he wants to stick around and he doesn't react to instability very well, but they keep him and then it starts to work a little bit. And then Todd Bertuzzi, well, it took him a while too. I mean, there's a comparable in today's NHL, different style of player, but it took Tage Thompson a little while to get going in Buffalo, didn't it? People thought, ah, it's never going to happen. Well, all of a sudden it happened for Todd Bertuzzi and he became arguably the most dominant player in the game for a very short stretch of time, but with the physical gifts he had that very few players who've ever played this game have, you can make the argument he was the most dominant player in the National Hockey League. I, I want to go back to the kind of the, the origins and the context when you know where the team was before the West Coast Express gets there. I've had a chance to listen to the first episode. Again, it drops on Tuesday next week for everyone, and it's really about you know from 1994 to you know the 98, 99, when they started to assemble these guys, and it's so – I think it's so jarring. Like, for the last 20-plus years, the Canucks have been so dominant in Vancouver and so incredibly popular, right? And just the building is full. There's There was a long sellout streak. Even now when they're struggling, it is – they are the dominant force in Vancouver sports. But, you know, even for me, talking to people just a little bit older than me, and they'll say, yeah, like when I was in high school, my buddies and I would just walk up 10 minutes before the game, get cheap tickets. It was great. <laughs> you know, it was bad, but it was great. And, like, can you just put in context kind of – the difference between where what the Canucks have become in the last 25 years and what they were at that time in the market. Well, I don't think people who didn't live through that era understand how little attention could get paid on the hockey team compared to now because it's my belief that the West Coast Express era set the foundation for the amount of attention that this team receives to this very day mm -hmm. and the rabid nature of Canucks fans. 
So prior to that, I'll give you a personal anecdote, Jamie. When I had finished university, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. There was a point in my life where I went, ah, maybe sports marketing would be something I'd want to go into. So I got what was basically a volunteer position through a friend at the Canucks, and it was cold calling people. You got to remember, this is pre-internet yep. days, really. So you're going off lists, and you'd call up and say, hey, Dave, how you doing? My name's Scott, and because you went to the boat show and entered to win this prize, we're able to offer you this amazing deal on an ice pack. Three games, less than 100 bucks, Dave. What wow. do you think? And do you know what the general response on the other end is? Why would I pay anything to watch these guys play hockey? I'd say, well, this, 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 you're doing your best. I'm just out of university. I'm trying to do the best I can. And he'd say, they play with no passion. They don't hit anybody. I've got no connection to the team. I don't want anything to do with it. And it would be phone call after phone call like that. And it struck me in doing that job just how bad it was out there. Like people had no time for it whatsoever, which is so hard to imagine in today's day and age, isn't it? It really is. It's impossible. First of all, that sounds a lot like Glenn Larry, Glenn Ross is what I'm picturing when you're describing that. Like, the See, leads are bad. Exactly. See, I'm, I'm picturing Scott calling every all these Canucks fans and them just keep doing Drance rants at him. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to my life. <laughs> but yeah, that's really incredible to think. And I mean, as you said, since then, we've never had an experience like that where like there's been frustration, there's been anger, but there's never been that level of apathy or irrelevance. That sense of irrelevance where it's just like they're not on the top of mind for people. Even when people are angry now, they're always on top of mind. And I think you have to owe some of that to the West Coast Express and those teams. You think of the amount of media attention that they got. Mm -hmm. And that'll be part of the story as well because of the different personalities and the burden of the captaincy for Naslund and Todd Bertuzzi and his interaction with the media. And and Brendan Morrison obviously juxtaposed against them as the local guy who got it because he grew up here and no big deal. But the amount of attention they got everywhere they went was so foreign to this hockey team at the time. Pavel Bure got that kind mm. of attention, but mm-hmm. Pavel Bure was a different type of personality, and there was a partial language barrier that could always be played at certain points in time, and the media was so different. But, man, that was back in the day when scrums grew to a point where you couldn't get your microphone in to talk to these three guys. And they had to deal with that as well. And that, to me, set the foundation for everything that happened after that with the 2011 team and the amount of attention they got. And Daniel and Henrik witnessed that, guys. Like, they were in those locker rooms when they were not the most prominent players on the team and were able to escape some of the scrutiny because of everything going on with this big line. And they watched, and as I mentioned, they're involved in this podcast, so they will tell you themselves we saw that. You can't really understand it until you're in the middle of it, but we saw how they conducted themselves and how much attention you got when you were the top-line players for this team and what was coming if we were able to get there. Scotty, having listened to you over the course of your career, you know, you are one of the most emp- empathetic interviewers hmm. I've ever heard, and, and I, I'm not just saying that to blow smoke because you're in the same room as me, <laughs> uh, but truly, and, and I'm curious to know like what sort of emotional highs stand out to you over the course of compiling all of this audio that you know like not not that I'm going to fast forward a second of it but if you were to say this moment that's what you got to hear what what's the what's the purest like Scotty gets a guy moment on the podcast Tom Larshide is one Mm. and it's in one of the episodes that's going to drop on Tuesday 
Tom Larshide tells a story in episode number two that I still listen to, and I've been doing this for months, and it makes me well up a little bit, the way he tells the story. It's incredible. It really is. I, my wife obviously has listened to it as well, and she, she's like, oh, it's getting a little dusty in here. <laughs> you know, like He tells the story in that way, and there's a couple of emotional moments like that. More than anything, I'm just thrilled that people were willing to mm. trust me enough to talk about this. It's not easy necessarily mm-hmm. for everybody, and not everybody wanted to be involved in the project. So, Drancy, you've done a book. You've, you've done long form in the past. For one reason or another, and I choose not to cast judgment on, hey, maybe somebody's got something going on in their life. Maybe they just don't want to talk about that. Maybe they have other issues, whatever it is. So not everybody was involved, but the key pillars are all there. Obviously, the three guys on the line, Crawford, Burke, the Sedins, Lyndon, Jovo, I mean, go down the list, various media personalities that I pulled in just to try to balance out the telling of this story through various lenses as well. But, yeah, I, I, and look, we'll get to it before you guys even ask. Everybody wants to know, do you touch on the Steve Morris? Mm. Yeah, of course. I can't tell this story without talking about that. Of course. And I was in the building that night, and it is still an uncomfortable feeling that washes over me when I think about what I felt and what this building felt when that happened. This isn't a relitigation of that case, and I have taken a lot of care to make sure that's not what this is. This is their story through their words and their perspective. So, no, I didn't reach out to everybody who was involved in that incident, and I didn't reach out to the Detroit Red Wings to find out what Nick Lidstrom's goal meant to them in 2002. But those are pretty emotional moments when you start talking to players and people close to this organization about that moment, what they saw, what they saw right after what their teammate was going through after that. Those are difficult conversations that, quite frank, I didn't really want to have, but I'm glad I did. Uh, we're talking to Scott Rintoul here on Canucks Talk. He's got a brand new podcast, Unreal West Coast Express, premiering January 31st, Tuesday next week. So as you mentioned, you were in the building that night. This was something you were either in the media for or very like you were aware of what was going on. This was not necessarily a new story to you, but I'm sure through the course of putting it together, you learned new things, things you didn't know, things that surprised you. How would you say your perspective on the West Coast Express and those teams has changed over the course of this? I think it's changed for me, Jamie, because Todd Bertuzzi is so much more vulnerable at this point of his life than Mm. he used to be. And that's not because he's trying to change the course of history, but I think we all remember the personality that Todd was. And it's not that he changed everything by himself in talking to these three players and, and those who are close to them, but because he's now willing to let more people into what he was feeling, what he was thinking at the time, how he dealt with certain things, specifically the media, it's really changed my perspective on how he's grown as a person mm. and also his realization of who he was at that time. It, it really has. So that would be one that stands out completely. And, you know, I guess I guess having players like the Sedins talk about what this mm. group meant to them and ushering them into the National Hockey League as well certainly, it certainly hits home because of what they became. Yeah, and that, I mean, we so often hear now about the Sedins' legacy, but it's interesting to get them to reflect on the legacy of those who came before them and really helped them out. You know, one of the other things you mentioned, and of course I think it's, it probably comes up pretty quickly for a lot of fans thinking about the West Coast Express is they never got past the second round. And yet, they are still these 
beloved figures or at least beloved memories. Marcus Naslin has his number retired here. What I mean, there's kind of two questions here. Like, one, what was the deal with the playoff success, I guess? But also, like, why did a team that didn't go on one of those storybook runs, you know, not one of the teams that's made it to the Stanley Cup Finals in this team's history, why have they kind of uh, persevered in the memories of, of Canucks fans? There's a couple of different things, and I know the immediate answer for those listening right now is, well, I know why they didn't win. They didn't have the goal to yeah, the playoffs. And there better be a full-throated Kluche defense episode. <laughs> yeah, Drancer's for, a big Kluche booster. There is, there is plenty of reason to point the finger there, but I will say that, not surprising, there's a lot of people who take ownership and say, no, no, not just him. Not just him. He can't look past a couple of the moments, but some of the ways they lost – are so ridiculous. Like, the Game 7 against Minnesota, yeah. the way... How about the, the fact that it was a back-to-back? Oh, man. Like, <laughs> a home road back-to-back from Minneapolis to Vancouver? Like, what... For Game 6 and 7 of what a series. Are, what are we, th- what Excuse are we talking me? about? <laughs> Excuse me? So there's a lot of reasons they didn't get the job done in the playoffs. And each is kind of its own story. And we don't need to chronicle them right now because I'm doing that for you on a podcast. <laughs> so, but, but every single one of them is memorable for one reason or another. Like, if I said to you, how did the Anaheim Ducks lose in the playoffs in 2008? Most people would be like, I don't know. I have no idea. Were they even in the playoffs in 2008? This team, the way they lost or the way they didn't get over or even the way they come back and win the one playoff series they did win, they're unforgettable for a lot of different reasons, aren't they? Like, is any hockey fan ever going to forget the Nick Lidstrom goal? Yeah. Ever? No. There's a lot of the stuff that happened in that series, but nobody will forget that. So you... You're tied to that, whether they win or not. I'll never forget the Pascal Dupuis goal. There you um, go. <laughs> was that the Brian Burke press conference as well, that series? Yeah, that's oh, another yeah. like legendary moment, it, right? It, yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Scotty, we've seen so many changes in this business. It's inevitable we all get caught up in them from time to time to undertake this project and effectively write, you know, I, I don't know if it's a love letter, but it's a, a, a something for the fan base something about this team. Uh, what did this project mean to you? What does it say about where we're going as a sports media business? It's a really good question because I don't have the answer to where we're going. I really don't. And I think we bog people down in the weeds too much if we talked about our business too much. But suffice it to say it's changed, and it's changed a lot. And the choices are so much different than they used to be mm-hmm. in media. And I have seen a little bit of a void in this part of sports media. Long form, spend some time, let's do a longer story. And I'm not sure how it will be consumed. I hope people want to consume it. I think they do. I think there's an appetite for this type of storytelling. I know I enjoy it because I've listened to other podcasts that take six, seven, eight, nine episodes. It's, it's like a Netflix series for your ears is really what it is. And I like that. I like investing the time and getting a little more detail. And so I think there's a place for that. I think there's a place for a lot of different areas now. And I think we're just in this age of choice, this generation that's come up. That's all they've ever understood. We come from an era where we're like, oh, yeah, there were pay-per-view yeah. games, and people <laughs> bitched about that because they had to pay for a game. Right. Uh, Forget I, about the fact that I paid for my cable, but they had to pay for a game. I'm old enough that I checked the paper for the box score in the morning, oh, yeah. right? Like, wake up. Like, I can see what happened Over around the league. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, uh, I, we're up there in- was a question, is there a game on TV tonight? Oh, it's not on? Okay. Yeah. Like, that was just something you accepted because that was the reality. We're up against it, Scotty, but quickly tell people, uh, again, about the details, where they can find it, release schedule, all that. 
Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, every major podcast provider, and of course, some of the smaller podcasters as well. You'll be able to get it anywhere you get your podcast. If you want to guarantee you get it right now, sign up, subscribe, unrealsports.com. That's unreal with two E's. Very good. Uh, the inbox is just overflowing. People really excited to hear from you. I know you're going to be on with Murph tonight as well, so Truth. look out for that. Uh, Rager requesting one last edition of Judge Jamie, which sorry, <laughs> sorry to let you down, Rager. Uh, we got to get out of here. I, but I can't wait to listen to the project, yeah. though. Thank Congratulations, you. and Thank I'm you. looking forward to giving it a full listen. I encourage all our listeners to do so as well. You're the best, Scott. Really Thank glad you, you could join us, Scotty. Uh, just quickly before we get off the air, it's a bye week for the Canucks next week. It's a bye week for us, too. We're off, but we'll be back post-All-Star break. Uh, so enjoy the week off, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650.